0: Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Dan Zamanovic. Earlier today, I was joined online by Dr. James Knott to discuss his recent monograph, Going to the Palais, a social and cultural history of dancing and dance halls in Britain, 1918. To new Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Tal Zamanovic. Earlier today, I was joined online by Dr. James Knott to discuss his recent monograph, Going to the Palais, a social and cultural history of dancing and dance halls in Britain, 1918 to 1960. The book was published recently by Oxford University Press. As you will soon hear from James, this book is a passionate exploration of a love affair between the British public and social dancing. James uses the uncharted history of dance and dancing in Britain to tell a riveting story about the transformations of working-class communities and of the changing notions of femininity, masculinity, and leisure. James chaperones us skillfully between the perspectives of dancehall owners, dance teachers, and innovators, to that of the enthusiastic jiving individuals, and finally to the onlookers and killjoys from the media and other organizations alarmed by this craze. This kaleidoscope of voices and images illuminates the role of the dance hall as a social space. It is argued that the dance hall brought together men and women in search of fun, but also of self-realization and exploration. The book demonstrates that American music and dance were embraced by the dedicated dancers, but also that a national style was forged on the dance floor and via the business model and publicity methods of the institution. Consequently, a unique British space was born. The story of the rise and fall of the dance hall is constructed through its economic history. Its financial success and decline are analyzed with sources from the day's trade press, such as the Dancing Times, the archives of individual companies, and the regulation and licensing records of towns and cities. The cultural role of the dance hall is revealed through its representation in local and national press. To find out what going to the Palais had meant to individuals, James conducted oral interviews with his parents, among others, and weaved together contemporaneous social surveys and muscle preservation reports. The result is a superb exploration of gender and race relations, as well as a fascinating look at an industry that had once rivaled cinema as an ultimate pastime. Thank you for downloading this podcast. I hope that you'll enjoy our conversation about this dazzling account of Dancing Britain as much as I did. Hi, James. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Hi, Uh, you're welcome. Looking forward to it.
0: Um, Could you actually begin our conversation with telling us a little bit about your um, academic background and what brought you to this specific project?
1: uh yeah sure um I suppose I came to this uh specific project basically because it was um i touched on it on my first book uh and also um in some Uh, family history. You know, there's a family history connection here. So um, I'm a historian of uh, popular culture, social history in 20th century Britain. And um, at Oxford, I did my PhD on the popular music industry in interwar Britain in the 1920s and 30s. That in itself was Um, something that had had basically come out of a hobby I I just loved the music from that period and I got more and more into it and as I was a historian I was able to develop kind of analytical and contextualization of it Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, my first book Music for the People um, primarily was looking at popular music industry but also i came across the dance halls for the first time when i was researching for that and indeed there's uh, something about 1920s and 30s dance halls in that book uh and i found mass observation um uh, an amazing source for that so it was at the back of my mind that the next project sort of coming naturally out of that uh would, would be dance halls mm-hmm. um The other major reason for coming to this is much closer to home. I mean, it's part of my family history. Uh, My parents met at a dance hall. Uh, My mother in particular was really interested in dancing. She absolutely loved it. And um, I sort of carried on doing it whenever she had the opportunity later on in life. Um, But yes, so it's all Part of my, my upbringing, my parents from working class background in uh, an industrial town in the north of England, um, they met at the hall. And the more I found out about the topic and spoke to other people, the more I realized that, you know, that that's where everybody met. Um, and the more I listened to other women of my mother's age speaking, the more I realized that, you know, they loved this uh, this dancing and it was really important to them. So, yeah, that's that's how I got into it.
0: I think that's a uh, wonderful reason. Um, actually, at some point in the book, you give this uh, kind of incredible statistic that 70% of the couples in Britain at the period met at the dance hall. So...
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how accurate that yeah. figure was. I think it was from the Daily Mail, but um, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised you know, that it's the major place to meet members of the opposite sex. And so many love stories and romances and people's marriages started in the dance hall.
0: Okay, so now that we're in a positive mood, uh, maybe you can help us set up the scene a bit. So describe this um, social space to us. What is a dance hall? How does it look like? Or um, who were the people that went there? And, you know, how old they were? What did they dance?
1: <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, well, if we think about the kind of... Um, quintessential dance hall, the public dance hall, the commercial dance hall uh, in effect they changed very little in uh, sort of their physical appearance and the conventions and the modes of behavior from the 1920s to through to the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So um, they would be wonderfully decorated. You would come into the dance hall. Uh, you'd probably have quite an elaborate uh, sort of vestibule and ticket counter. um if they were f- particularly fancy, you'd have uh, sort of members of staff in a uniform to greet you and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there'd be facilities for changing because a lot of people came to the dance hall and they would go and change their clothes or adjust their makeup and so on of the, the women in in the changing rooms.
0: So um, they would come straight from work and change there. It wasn't only a weekend pursuit, Right.
1: Yeah, that's right. Because a lot of people coming straight after work, uh, or also, you know, maybe we can uh, discuss as well the kind of uh, parental attitudes towards this. Some some parents didn't like uh, their, their daughters going to the dances, or they perhaps wouldn't agree to what they were wearing there. So girls would put on an extra dress over the top of their proper dance hall dress and then you know take that off once they got to the dance hall (laughs) but um yes so you you have the large central space where the dancing the dance floor is there Um, And you've got subdued lighting. Mm -hmm. Um, You have perhaps around the edge of the dance hall, you'd have uh, tables and chairs with um, linen tablecloths on where you could get a a drink, a a cup of tea, a coffee maybe, soft drinks. Mm -hmm. Um, And there might be a balcony above. In some of the dance halls, like Mecca dance halls, you could um, pay just to go in the bulk and not dance so that was part of the attraction as well because of the kind of social atmosphere of this uh, um of the dance hall you could go up there and just watch the other dancers gossip chat uh, have a coffee or whatever mm-hmm. um, so you had uh, once you you've got the, the dance base at the end of the larger ones you'd have a raised uh, stage um, mecca dance halls were put, which was one of the most famous chains of dance halls they were famous for having revolving bandstands oh. so a bit of kind of showbiz mm-hmm. and glamour if you like um, yeah. this Fancy. meant they could change the, the orchestra uh, overnight kind of seamlessly. One would swirl around in a kind of theatrical uh, entrance um, and, and come onto the stage. So this was um, always live so, music, right? Sorry?
0: It was always live music.
1: Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, there were some experiments in uh, using recorded music during the war when there was a shortage of... Um, Musicians, mm-hmm. uh, and afterwards, when the after the war, when the, the sort of recording technology, reproductive technology, uh, makes it more feasible, but. On the whole, um, we're talking about live music, live orchestras,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's one of the key kind of attractions of the dance hall is that uh, the music was great, you know, mm-hmm. it was fantastic. Uh, these orchestras, they could be visiting famous bands, but more often they were kind of the local palais orchestra. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were, you know, they were really skilled um, and uh, uh, good at what they were doing mm-hmm. so yeah, live music wonderful music um, it depended what time of the evening you were when you arrived, who you would see there, mm-hmm. um, the earlier part of the evening would be predominantly female um, because what usually happened was that the men uh, would go to the pub for a drink before a bit of Dutch courage if you like mm-hmm. uh, before they came along uh, and Probably would arrive about nine o'clock or so. So in the earlier parts of the evening, lots of girls dancing with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, a really good place for uh, female interaction and identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it becomes increasingly more mixed as the evening comes mm-hmm. uh, develops. What you tended to happen in almost all of them in my research, and this was as true in the twenties, fifties, uh, as it was in the twenties, you'd have. Boys and men on one side, girls and women on the other side of the room, A kind of self-enforced segregation. You know, wasn't uh, everybody was free to mix, but this just tended to be how it happened. Everybody kind of up against one side of the room, uh, facing uh, each other across the dance floor. The music would strike up going to play a waltz, a foxtrot, whatever it was, take your partners and then the two sides would come together magically Uh, the men would approach the women because that was the convention for uh, most of the period um, and ask uh, if they would uh, uh, like to dance and then couples would form and they'd go onto the dance floor so it's very ritualistic um and these conventions survived as i said for decades who went well um it's predominantly the the largest part of the audience is young uh it's female but obviously there are boys there as well um and uh, it's working class or or lower middle class um and that. Um, with some sort of variations, uh, is the kind of how it stays throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s. Mm
0: -hmm. And there's no alcohol served, right?
1: Yeah, this is Mm -hmm. one of the interesting things that perhaps surprises a lot of people today, Mm -hmm. is that, the dance halls were dry. there was no alcohol unless it was a private function where you had hired out the dance hall for a party or some kind of special dance um, then then they 'd be dr- dancing then they 'd be drinking they 'd be able to get a license but most of the time the public dance halls were um, not ser- they were not licensed and they were not serving alcohol so you get pots of tea glasses of squash because of course dancing's a thirsty business <laughs> um and but there were attempts to try and smuggle booze in through you know back windows and so on but they were heavily controlled mm-hmm. by um, MCs, MCs, musters of ceremonies and various other members of stuff who'd keep an eye out for that kind of thing
0: Yeah, well, maybe we can talk about that a bit later because you kind of describe a whole system of regulation and and people, you know, um, positioned in key locations to make sure sure that everybody behaves. Um, So, uh, you know, actually, why don't you tell us a bit about this too so we can imagine these people also moving in the space that you just described.
1: Um, What about the regulation? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... um... Again, depending on the period, the, the part of the period that we're talking about, and the particular dance halls, um, there was a degree of regulation that could be quite, um, quite severe, if you like, um, in the nineteen fifties. Uh, in some of the Scottish dance halls in Dundee for example um, they were the dance halls would employ um, members of staff with Whistles and they would patrol the dance floor looking at young couples and if they got a bit too frisky or a bit too close or they were kissing a bit too much uh, other than a sort of peck on the cheek Whistle would blow and to kind of be over there, no, move apart, move apart. Um, in Liverpool in the 50s as well, uh, they called these people kiss killers. <laughs> so uh, they were very, um, very much on the lookout for um, kind of bad behaviour as they sort <laughs> of saw it, or excessive smooching and so on and so forth. Um, you'd have um, bouncers on the door as well these develop in the 1950s after a number of kind of high profile um, fights and so on involving teddy boys uh, more often you would get um, the, the Mecca for example found that it was good policy to use uh, women rather than kind of aggressive looking uh, male bouncers to um to screen the patrons when they were coming in. So they would look out for people who were drunk, uh, who looked as if they were going to cause trouble, or even if they were badly behaved, some of the dance halls, uh, sorry, badly dressed, some of the dance halls had Mm -hmm. dress codes where, you know, if you didn't wear a tie, you weren't allowed in, so they'd Mm -hmm. have a supply of ties for you to put on to. All about maintaining a a kind of image of respectability.
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: there are... the screening when you come in before you come in to get in uh and then once you're on the dance floor the dancers are moving around the floor and so on uh, a lot of um people would be standing at the sides watching the dancing not actually dancing themselves or sitting at tables um and It was possible there to kind of escape the uh, overseeing eye of these uh, members of staff and perhaps have a cuddle in the corner, a kiss and a smooch or something like that. But anything, you know, more than rather innocent interactions like that would be, well, one frowned upon by your peers, but also they'd spot it. Um, So, yeah, um, that was the kind of... um, the space being regulated, as it
0: were. Well. Okay, so now that we kind of know or heard how it, it looked, um, why do you think it had such a great appeal? I mean, if, at some point, you know, your one of your main arguments is that between 1918 and 1960s, there's actually a, a love affair, you call it, of um, social dancing in Britain. Why was it um, so appealing?
1: Um, Well, I think a number of reasons. Uh, First of all, of course, there is the music and the dances themselves, which are key, obviously, to to the dance halls. what develops after the First World War um, is a new kind of music with first jazz and then uh, dance band music and then big band music and then later uh, jive and rock and roll. It's um, much more energetic and, and um, appealing to especially to younger people. So the revolution in music kind of revolutionises the appeal in dancing as well. People are, are intrigued by these new musical forms, plus they're exposed to them to a greater extent because after the First World War, you've got new mass media of uh, first the gramophone and then of course the radio, and then sound films also bring new musical tastes over. So in general, in British society, there's a huge thirst for uh, for music. Um, They are accompanied and the two kind of go hand in hand by these new dancers. The other thing that's new about the post-First World War period, is the development of um, couple dances. So before that, obviously, dancing has always been popular, but at least in public, um, it had tended to be in the form of group dances uh, with a set of um, exacting um, movements that everybody had to replicate and everybody had to do at the same time. Um, What happens after the First World War Developing just before it, but really taking off after the First World War, is that um, you get these new partner dances that are um, designed just for single couples, and even though there are sort of prescribed steps and so on, there's a degree of. Um Interpretation there that means people can uh, sort of add their own spin to it, as it were. But um, you have a room full of couples dancing slightly differently rather than a room full of, uh, you know, one dancing group, as it were, uh, which had been the case before. So there's the music and the dance. That's one reason why these uh, dancers um, take off so. Uh, successfully, but also it's a reflection of um, you know wider social and economic changes. There's more money available and uh, there's more time available to enjoy leisure pursuits, particularly for the young who are relatively affluent in both monetary terms and in terms of spare time and leisure. Um, you've also got changing social mores so you know the dance halls are both reflective of and are also helping change changing gender boundaries and relations so what was permissible in the dance hall for women to do and for men and women to do together wouldn't have been permissible for example in the victorian period it just wouldn't have been acceptable so the fact that Women could go unchaperoned to the dance hall was a key part of their attraction for women, but also as reflecting some of the big changes that were were going on. Um, So, yeah, you've also got. Uh, commercialism, which obviously it existed before, but in leisure, or I mean, part of the explosion in dancing, we've got to give some credit to the businesses behind it, um, mm-hmm. the businessmen who, um, you know pioneered this industry, bringing over from America these vast sort of dance palaces uh, and this idea of providing a public space that was cheap and accessible, where you didn't need to hire a hall, you didn't need to hire Um, musicians, you didn't need to uh, provide catering, all of which is very expensive and made it something uh, that was either middle class or um, uh, sort of restricted to special occasions for working class people. Those kind of the the, uh, sort of application of commerce, business interests too. dancing after the First World War um, really helped to open up a mass audience for it.
0: Okay, so actually, I, I, I do want to talk about this. You alluded to this uh, to Carl Hayman, the man behind the Mecca chain, and I think that one of the amazing things about your book is that you you don't shy away from economic history, which is um, many times the case when working on cultural and, and, and social history. Um, and you know, kind of just looking at your footnotes, I understand uh, you know the, the amount of work that went into bringing this. Um, kind of third uh, kind of uh, history into, into the work. Um, so tell us about Hangman and why was he so um, important to you uh, in, in, in creating this narrative?
1: Yeah, I think uh, he's absolutely critical to the understanding of the development of dancing in Britain. And also um, you know, he has a number of other interests uh, that are important for the culture of Britain as well. Mecca moves on in the 50s and 60s into to bingo, for example. But... Um, I wanted, to, perhaps if I talk a little bit about, you know, why I focused on the economic history mm-hmm. as well. I, mean, I really wanted to bring home how influential dancing was and just how it was everywhere and how every small town and large city had these palais de dance and how they sort of multiplied and spread Um and how successful they were and pioneering they were as businesses because um, you know they were part of a kind of democratisation of British culture that's being uh, led by commercialism in the 1920s, 30s and then uh, even more effectively after the Second World War uh, with the growth of consumerism more generally. Carl Hyman of Mecca... Um, was really important because he set the sort of model for others to emulate. He worked as well with Alan Fairley, who was his partner at Mecca. He was an important Scottish uh, entrepreneur. I mean, Hyman had come over from Denmark um, as a child with just a few pence in his pocket and unable to speak English. And he was a, is a classic kind of rags-to-riches story um, He starts working for Mecca Company, which is uh, really concerned with catering, uh, and he sees whilst catering at the Savoy Hotel uh, just how um, wonderful dancing is. (laughs) And he um, endeavours to try and give uh, those kind of Savoy Hotel dancing experiences and standards of luxury to um, ordinary people, bring it to a wider market, um, because he can make a lot of money out of it. He sees that there's a potential, a uh, huge potential market there for this kind of thing. So he has the original idea, if you like. Uh, uh, well, there were um, other entrepreneurs such as Bucker and Mitchell that are behind the um, Hammersmiths uh, Palais, which was the first kind of public dance hall on the American model, but he um, uh, Hyman is more influential because um, he sets up and develops this chain of dance halls. The other influence, the other reason why he's influential, is because he changes dancing. Uh, itself um, one of the developments after you know, one of the reasons why the dances were so popular after the First World War was that they were spontaneous, there was a kind of um, joie de vive about them uh, and as I outline in the book, the development of the English style by uh, professional dance teachers was an attempt to regulate and control them for a variety of reasons because of the kind of moral reaction to them um, And it makes them more formalized and kind of subdued. Uh, So Mecca realizes, Hyman realizes that, you know, this is putting off a lot of potential dancers because you've got to go through these lessons. It's uh, all rather complicated. How do we get more dancers into the dance halls? Well, let's create a number of easy-to-do dances. And so he's responsible for these group that develop in the 1930s, most famous example of which is is the Lambeth Walk. So he's really important um, as an economic businessman, as a pioneer of the industry, uh, introducing all sorts of new methods, um, publicity, advertising and so on. But he's also uh, influential because... um, of his influence on actually what was being danced by people and trying to popularise these easy to do dances
0: I really like the story that you put about um, the way that uh, during the the war when there's a shortage of men, he comes up with this idea of um, equal rights nights for women which they can choose their partners
1: yes, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that was really fascinating um, so yeah, he's. I don't know. On the one hand, I want to see him as a kind of pioneering, sort of uh, progressive feminist um, uh, supporter of emancipation. But at the, on the other hand, you know, he's a hard nosed businessman, mm-hmm. and he realizes that um, most of his um, uh, clients, or most of the people coming to the dance halls, uh, are women, and that that kind of um, proportion of women increases even more during the war itself as men are called up and so on. And so he is um, interested in making sure that they have a good time and they they come to the dance One of the trouble was that um, there were so many more women compared to men, that it made the odds really difficult when it came to getting a dance. So this is why it introduces this idea of um, equal rights, where the traditional convention of men choosing women and asking them to dance is turned on its head and uh, women are allowed to um, to choose their, their own partners.
0: And of course, after the war, the convention is, they return to convention and. Uh...
1: Yeah, that was one of the things that I found interesting here. Was that, um, you know, during the war itself, it had it wasn't wholly successful this experiment Uh, it was only introduced in a few of the Mecca dance halls there were some who resisted it but it kind of it it, it was allowed it it happened but then once the war ends there's a return to the pre-war norm of men being able to choose their partners and there didn't seem to be much of a kind of protest against that in fact most women seem to, to welcome that
0: Interesting. Okay. So um, if we're talking about women, it's really, I think your book touches on two demographics in particular, women and um, young people. Yeah. Um, so so since we've already started talking a bit about women, um, you describe the dance hall as a feminine public sphere. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. Um
1: Basically dance hall is a female public space um, in an obvious kind of way for for a start that dancing was just more popular with uh, women and um, women tended to outnumber men in the dance hall as I've suggested, as we discussed earlier on depending on the time of the evening that degree of uh, female kind of um, outnumbering uh, could be particularly great in the earlier part of the evening uh, but so in that sense it was a female space um, there are always more women there than there are men and it's also a female space because it's one of the few arenas where and a few activities where women had a head start over men uh, they done, started dancing a, a lot earlier um, it was considered to be a bit kind of sissy for for younger boys to to start dancing and it's not really until they start thinking about kind of girlfriends potential girlfriends or taking interest in girls more generally that that boys start to dance so um, girls are starting to dance from the age of 12, 13 um, sometimes even younger than that and they are also usually more skilled they take a much keener interest in learning to do dancing properly. So in that sense, this is um, a public space where there are more women and they're engaged in an activity uh, which, on the whole, they are better at than men.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: The other reason I say it's a sort of female space is that, um, unlike the pub, uh, it is oh, women are welcome there. In fact, you know, obviously... Dancing requires heterosexual coupling. It's one of the key aspects of the, the past time. Um, but the space, as we've already described with those uh, MCs and those various people controlling behaviour, is much more orderly uh, and um, less volatile. And even though there were instances of violence, on the whole, it's a lot less violent and threatening uh, to women than a, a lot of other public uh, spaces, uh, such as the pub and so. So yeah, that, that's really why it's uh, a female space, a really key female public space.
0: You also described that it's a space where women can um, kind of play out different identities, um, mm-hmm. you know, through their clothes, through their choice of dance, uh, the way they perform, I guess, their femininity in this um, space.
1: Absolutely. Um, the da- dance halls is also are really crucial to development of female identity, as you say. By the dancing itself, as I've uh, suggested, the, um, women were more skilled than men at dancing. Um, and there's a lot of evidence to show that f- women felt great about being able to dance well. It really boosted their self-confidence. Um The mastering of dance steps and so on was a real um, boost. You've also got, um, dancing is the equivalent of sport for women at this time. Um, It offers physical and mental exercise, uh, physically, obviously. (laughs) One of the most interesting uh, stories I remember is, um, a uh, woman who was dancing in the fifties, she said, whenever they went dancing, they would weigh themselves before they went in the dance hall and afterwards, and they, would, you know, were amazed how much weight they'd lost because over an evening dancing, you know, it's it's a very energetic uh, pastime. So it was great for women who were stuck in factories or in offices or shops and some mostly sedentary kind of behaviour for them to be able to uh, get exercise. But also it was good for relaxation, um, and a lot of uh, women said how much they looked forward to this. It was the highlight of their week, was when they went out dancing. It gave them a real uh, kind of boost um, psychologically as well. You've also got development of identities via uh, the... The way that they dance, as you said, uh, it it is one of the features of the new social dances. Whatever the dance teachers say is that you can um, express yourselves through the dancing. So little steps, little twists, little moves, the way that you do the dance um, allows women to explore their identities uh, and particular dances and improvisations. And um, there's a lot of evidence that they found Sort of beauty in dancing uh, itself, and were attracted to it for aesthetic reasons. But clothing, as you said, was really because of getting ready for the dance, getting dressed up. This was a key part of the evening. That's why the dance halls provided uh, these facilities in in uh, for women in the changing rooms, uh, mirrors and so on. Even in Dundee in the 50s, they had um, a yardly kind of perfume machine where you could put in your money and it would literally spray you with some with some perfume. Um, so the way in which women dressed uh, Which clothes they chose, um, the way in which they styled their hair, uh, and they were bombarded with sort of often patronising advice about how to do this. This was all a key part. It was it was a it was a it was a very supportive uh, venue for them to experiment in, Mm -hmm. in the way they looked and the way they conducted themselves. Of course. There was peer pressure, and there'd like, be gossip, and there'd be kind of you know um, name calling as well. But on the whole, um, as I say, it's uh, it's a, it's a supportive atmosphere where they can go away from their parents um, uh, if they're younger and um you know just experiment so in the cinema you can be inspired by hollywood movie stars but in the dance hall you can actually try out what you've seen on the screen mm-hmm. you can dr- put on those dresses adopt those hairstyles maybe use some of those chat up lines or uh, the way that a certain film star um, kisses uh, and so on you can actually put them in action
0: mm-hmm. Okay, so actually this leads us to the second demography, and that's uh, youth, because you describe it a lot as the dance hall as a place of kind of preparing you for uh, adulthood through experience. Um, So first, if you can just tell us a bit about youth as a historical category, because I think that you also kind of want to fit your work into a debate about Uh, the teenager Um, and then uh, to tell us a bit why do you think um, dancing was important for teenagers yeah
1: Uh, uh, so um, yes my work is part of a um, number of studies by people like Bill Osgoby and David Fowler, who suggested that you know, the teenager does not just suddenly arrive after the Second World War, although, of course, that's an important stage in the development of youth identity and youth culture. We can see in the dance hall precursors to that um, from um, the 1920s onwards. So, this group, I mean, we, <laughs> Uh, The youth is described as those aged from about 13 to 20, 25, so it's not technically teenagers. Mm -hmm. But, um, yes, the the dance hall shows that... um, There was youth culture, there were youth identities, uh, there were ways of behaving uh, and styles of clothing, ways of dancing that were developed, that were deliberately being developed to um, make youth different and distinctive from from adults. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, why was was dancing important for teenagers? Well... um, (sighs) first is the sort of issue of socialization so dancing was important the transition to adulthood as tom harrison from mass observation said in 1938 when you leave uh, school you learn to work to smoke to bet and to dance so it was one of those social skills that uh, young people um developed in order to become adult and uh, Dance is offered people, young people, a first taste of independence. It allows them a sense of peer identity. They would go together with uh, groups of friends from work or school uh, for the same street and so on. Uh, and it would allow them familiarity with the opposite sex. That's where they get their first uh, experience of dates and so on. Mm-hmm. But it's also, as well as developing sort of a distinctive youth peer identity and allowing this transition to to adulthood. It's also critical in the formation of early youth cultures. Mm -hmm. So um, young people occupy distinctive physical spaces from their elders that makes them uh, kind of separate and distinctive. In the 1920s, that Took the form of highly stratified um, learners' halls that were little church halls or little assembly rooms, um, not the commercial dance halls, that would cater for a very specific age range you know you'd go to one until you're about 14 or 15 and then you know you were too old for that then you'd progress to the next one 15 16 mm-hmm. and then eventually uh, when you're 18 you'd go into the public dance halls mm-hmm. there were also in the 1940s and 50s a kind of distinctive physical space um developed within the dance halls themselves My own mother remembers how if you wanted to jive certain dances, uh, so dance them in a jive style, uh, there was a part of the dance floor that was cordoned off where the jivers would go. And that was was increasingly common. And, And that had been the case with the jitterbug during the war as well. Then it takes the sort of final leap in the late 1950s to young people having their own commercial dance halls. So this dance hall will only provide this kind of sort of young music, rock and roll, jive, those kind of dances, where other dance dance halls would be for the older generation. Mm -hmm. So um, you get this distinctive physical space, but also distinctive dancing habits and styles, uh, certain dances are adapted and made their own by by young people so even though they're popular across the age groups, dances like the Charleston in the 20s, swing dances like trucking in the 30s, the Jitterbug in the 40s, and driving in the 50s are particularly taken up by uh, young people. A number of reasons why. Um, they're energetic. They're very energetic, these dances. So really it's only young people who can do them uh, to great effect. Um, there's such a degree of exhibitionism as well, and that's all part of the sort of youthful, uh, development of identities and showing off to peers, um, and uh, there's much more room for individualism and expression in these kind of dances, like the Charleston and the jitterbug and the jive, which again makes them appeal to young people. But also, um, it becomes um, sort of uh, because of the reaction of the elder of older people at these dances, you know. Uh, for a variety of reasons, Charleston, Jitterbug, Jive are considered bad, and they get a lot of complaints, that makes them attractive as well. Great, mm-hmm. we're annoying our elders, this makes these kind of dances even more attractive to us.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, um, we'll get to the moral outcry in a minute, but I just want to ask you where people learn to dance these things, because we talk a bit about American influence and you know um, mass media, um, mm-hmm. You said something about dance teachers so, and classes. So how do people know how to dance?
1: Yes, well, um, I suppose there are two great schools of, of sort of dancing skill. Um, there are those who learn to dance and those who don't. Bother to learn to dance. So, you know, a, vast, a lot of people were just content to go along to the dance hall and shuffle along and do very basic steps, which they could pick up perhaps from their friends, might show them um, how to do a few steps, or they might read about them in the newspapers, see them on television or films, and so on. Okay. But um, they weren't really concerned with perfecting the technique. It has to be said that that tended to be. More male than female, because as we said, women were more interested in the skill of dancing and dancing for its own sake. For men, um, even, although it's true also of women, but to a greater extent, for men, the dancing was, you know, about social aspects, particularly finding girls, picking up members of the opposite sex. So we got that that kind of. Um, um, Group. For those who did want to learn to dance, um, then yeah, dance teachers and dance schools are remarkably successful and, and numerous um, throughout the period, although they, they kind of start to decline by the, the 50s. Um, but most towns would have a dance school, um, they'd be uh, various dance classes that you could go along to, depending on, you know, delineated along skill and age. Maybe gender, but not usually. Um, and um, you, you could uh, you could pay a small fee and and uh, learn the, learn the dance steps. There are other ways as well. and mass media has rapidly sort of. Um, realises that dancing is a huge uh, potentially profitable uh, subject and uh, leisure activity so you get the films put in action, newsreels are developed by people like Santos Cassini, a famous dance teacher from the 1920s because of course the visual medium of, of film makes it potentially very useful to, to, to teach people how to dance but how effective these really were when you just see them in the cinema for a few minutes, I'm not quite sure. Similarly, gramophone records, maybe remarkably, that you would have records uh, which would um, sort of uh, read out the steps, provide some music, and you'd have an accompanying booklet with the, the moves and so on uh, that you were supposed to do. Uh, but at uh, perhaps more effectively, there was a whole publishing industry of dancing manuals teaching you how to dance, the most famous of which was uh, Victor Sylvester's Modern Ballroom Dancing, um, which sold at its millions and has never actually been out of print since it was uh, first issued in the early 1920s. Um, the newspapers also had a dancing column and they put sort of... Um, um, dance steps uh, images there for you to follow again you could roll up the carpet and uh, have a dancing session in your front room over the radio um, there were some um, petite dance lesson um programmes on the radio as well, which the BBC's Radio Times would provide uh, illustrations to accompany. Some of the more unusual things, you know, you've kind of got a whole subsidiary of uh, little industries trying to cash in on the dance craze. Uh, You could, I mean, I'm I'd imagine it would have been very expensive, but there was some early electric dance machine which had bulbs that lit up uh, um, uh, and correlated to positions on the floor where you would uh, put your your feet at a particular time. It's like a dancing robot. It was described as that was something that developed just after the Second World War, um, but there were. There were also um, a little bit like the Twister, the sort of game from the nineteen seventies. Roll out a sheet; it would have feet and places for you to go, and you know you could uh, try and learn to dance that way. So the whole myriad of different ways, but the dance teachers were. Um, were the most uh, sort of um, ubiquitous uh, and popular way if you wanted to learn to dance, you'd go to a dance school and dance class.
0: So, when you describe these um, dance manuals, I keep thinking that um, it must have been a real challenge to research something as a historian that is actually so fleeting as, as a dancing experience. So, maybe you can tell us a bit how you did that.
1: Yes, well, yeah. That is where um, that is where I use a combination of different sources from the official, if you like, from the dance teachers' side of things, these manuals. But also, they had a, a remarkable dance press uh, that set up the Dancing Times, was really important for my research. Uh, You also had a sort of more popular versions of that, um, ballroom and band and various other um, uh, sort of more popular dancing um, uh, journals. Because the trouble with those was that they are really written by people in the industry itself, dance teachers, maybe dance hall managers, or avid uh, sort of amateur or semi-professional dancers so they have a particular perspective it's not uh, to be disregarded but it needs to be um kind of balanced out by um uh, the sort of recollections from from the general public uh, for the from the ordinary kind of dancer mm-hmm. and that's why i chose to use oral history uh for this because even though there was some material on ordinary dancers from the 30s from things like mass observation, um, you know, even that um, was kind of uh, usually tangential to, um, either it was tangential to another study, the focus wasn't just on dance, or when the focus was on dance, because they did do a lot of research into dance halls, um, it was through the eyes of the often middle-class observers. Mm -hmm. So oral history I used um, to, to... ask people what it meant, what it felt like, what it was like. Um, and that, that was really difficult because people actually did find it difficult to put that into into terms. You know, it was almost subliminal, their enjoyment of it. Um, and I really did have to press hard to, to try and eke out uh, sort of greater... Um, Understanding of and thoughts about uh, the dancing experience from the interviewees.
0: Did you interview your mother? Yes, I
1: did. <laughs> you did. I did interview my mother and my father. But I must say, it was mostly my mother speaking. My dad sort of uh, popped up a couple of times uh, to to in, to you know, interject, but yeah, yeah, I did. That was great. It was great to be able to do that.
0: So. Um, you know, there's many more questions that I, you know, could have uh, asked you, and I can just urge people to to take the book and read it because it's got so much of these uh, very interesting and delightful, um, you know, anecdote and analysis in it. But um, let's get to the kind of the less optimistic side of the story, and that's the decline um, in the 1960s, which is kind of, you know, um, say that dance halls fall victim to rising prosperity. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah. Um... <laughs> In a way, it sounds like um, a sort of par- a contradiction of what I'd said earlier, because I say one of the reasons that they rise uh, to popularity in the 20s, 30s, 40s is, is be- as a reflection of growing affluence. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a limited kind of affluence in that period. So um, there was economic... People were, were, were getting better off, but there was general kind of economic insecurity before the Second World War, uh, and um, that meant that there was a thirst for pleasures, a kind of live for the day uh, uh, kind of mentality that served dancing gra- uh, greatly. You know, that was one of the reasons why it's boomed. In the 1960s, however, you really start to get, um, after a period of full employment, the welfare state has really kicked in and given people a level of social security that they have. Didn't have before the commitment to full employment that the governments are um, carrying out um, means that people are starting to look beyond just kind of the pleasures of the moment, the pleasures of the day, and they're acquiring more acquisitive uh, instincts. Particularly, um, this is the period where. The British love affair with owning their own home uh, starts to develop in a big way. Embryonically, it developed in the 1920s and 30s, but it's really only in the 60s that mass uh, home, domestic home ownership starts to take off. You've also got other big consumer durables like the development of cars uh, in this period in Britain, uh, and this takes people are, and also growing suburbanization on the back of both of those mm. developments this people this sort of is reflected in a breakup of some of those closely knit working class communities mm. so this greater affluence that you see in the 60s uh, focuses people on the home, domesticity the family unit individualism uh, rather than the kind of previous bonds of working class life of community, of the street of the town uh, and uh, as it happens of the palais. Uh, people want to do other things
0: Maybe watch Put, TV sorry, mm-hmm. sorry, go. Maybe watch TV
1: Yes, there's television <laughs> um, Television doesn't initially effect Dancing, its popularity in the same way that it does cinema, obviously, it kills off mm-hmm. cinema. Um, and you get come dancing, which uh, sort of in a way boosts uh, temporarily the popularity of, of dancing. Um, but in the sense that the television reflects a new kind of uh, focus on home life mm-hmm. and staying in, then yes, uh, that, that is part of the uh, sort of counter attractions. Plus, you get a liberalisation of licensing laws, the dance halls had been dry, so um, you know, increasingly people want to go out and have a drink, mm-hmm. uh, have something to eat, and uh, these kind of all-purpose entertainment venues develop. Also, liberalisation in copyright laws means that live music starts to take over from, uh, sorry, recorded music starts to take over from live music mm-hmm. and jukeboxes and this kind of thing, embryonically studying in coffee bars, smaller venues where people can dance, uh, and the use of recorded music obviously leads to the development of discos, and it's a completely different kind of um, experience and also social mores to change. The fact is that you don't need to go to a dance hall to meet a member of the opposite sex. And The fact is that women are no longer prepared to sit there and wait to be uh, asked for a dance. They want to take matters in their own hands. And
0: so all of these things kind of lead to the, to the demise of the pame So before we kind of, uh, you know, say our farewells to the dance hall, um I'm sure that uh, other people that would read the book will probably feel like I did, that kind of the urge to listen to some of this music or maybe watch a clip of couples driving, or read a book about, uh, you know, youth culture in the 40s in Britain. Was there any, is there any cultural product of this kind that you find inspiring or found inspiring when you were uh, doing the research for this um, project and could recommend?
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> Obviously... The music of the period is uh, one of the key ways to get in into this, uh, mm-hmm. the dance music. There are dozens and dozens of CDs, of MP3s, of dance uh, bands, dance musicians from the 1920s, 30s, and then the sort of 40s, 50s, and then the rock and roll era. So that that's all out there. There are a lot of films as well. Um, the newsreels were fascinated by by the um, by, the dancing phenomenon. So uh, if you go on to the internet, you can find, you know, British Pathé, mm-hmm. uh, at British Movie Turn News. You can find a lot of really fascinating um, mm-hmm. dance, new, newsreels about dance halls and those um, demonstration dances that I talked about mm-hmm. from people like Santos Cass- Cassini, they're all there. Mm-hmm. Um pick up some of those dance manuals like, from people like Victor Sylvester, uh, buy one of his uh, autobiographies. You know, they're an interesting read as well. <laughs> but there are a number of films, in uh, particularly the 1950 film Dance Hall*, which mm-hmm. follows the... Um, Exploits of a, a group of young women in the dance hall, uh, filmed in a prop, real dance hall. You know, in in the spirit of the nineteen fifties, kind of social problem, social comment film. Uh, that's a great film to watch as well. Um, in fact, there are so many films from the period that have scenes. Set in dance halls. So if you want to get a great evocation of sort of 1920s dance halls, look at the silent classic Hindle Wakes uh, which has got a, amazing uh, ballroom scenes um, If you want to have a similar evocation of the kind of nightclub culture from that period look at Piccadilly uh, with um, Anna Mae Wong, also from the 1920s and that's been released by the BFI. So there are lots of films that you can look at if you want want to look at the later period the 40s and 50s then um, kind of those films aimed at the youth market uh, in Britain also have a lot of references to, to the dance culture so there are all of those kind of cultural artifacts products if you like from the period uh, that are um, that are, are out there because the other thing I could say but I feel hypocritical about saying it was you know, try dancing but the great irony of all of this is I don't actually myself dance so, actually uh, that was
0: my uh, last question but now that you've answered it <laughs> you yeah, never tried one of those because, my
1: mother keeps uh, saying that I you know I've got to I've got to dance so <laughs> maybe this is the year that I put on those dance shoes
0: <laughs> okay James thank you so much for this lovely conversation and for your fabulous book I learned a lot from it um, and I really recommend it
1: Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's been delightful talking about it.